0: Greetings, everyone. My name is Peter de and welcome back to the second installment of Y2K and Autobiography. The reason I decided to put this together was I wanted to reclaim the narrative. The narrative that the media has presented is that this was all for nothing, that Y2K wasn't really an issue, and it was much to do about nothing. That isn't the truth. the truth of the matter is, for those of us who worked in the field, is that this was a problem that we eventually fixed. So I'm going to do the one that I've sort of been hesitant to do because everybody has heard this before, and all the different reasons why are a problem, well, most of them have been identified. So we're going to go quickly through the first part and then get into some new stuff, stuff that we've never spoken about before. So... Let's get into, the bones of the problem is real simple. We used a two-digit representation for the year, and what we were assuming, we told the computer to to assume, by the way, we programmed it, is that that two-digit year was prefaced by 19. In other words, 55 is not really 55, it's 1955. Boom. That's the problem in a nutshell. You can actually go from here to everything else I'm going to say with just a little bit of thought and analysis on your own. That's the problem. Why did it start? Well, memory space and we're going to use the the, the Hollerith card as a metaphor for that to start. When did the Hollerith card came out? Well, why did we have Hollerith cards? An 1890 census in the United States took ten, eight years to process. It needs to be done every 10 years. So the, the 1881 took eight years. And they said, well, population's increasing. We need a faster way to do this. How are we gonna do that? And we came up with this solution. We would put the data on cards, we would hand it over to the machine, and the machine can count faster than we can. This is the beginning of it all. That card is 80 characters. It has to store all the information for a single individual. All the, as much information as we can about one individual. If we used four digits for the year on that card, we've used up a lot of that space. So we didn't. We use a two-digit year. That's the start of it. It continues, though. Here are the costs for hardware devices, DASD, Digital Access Storage Devices, produced by various companies over the years. It's expensive. megabytes, $34,500. Do the math. How much does it cost to store a four-digit year versus a two-digit year? Whatever it is, it's about a dollar or something. It's expensive. We can't afford to store all the data. Now, it got better, and it got better rapidly. The first better part is 1982, the Seagate 506. 5 megabytes, 1350. Okay, great. The, the reason the Seagate one is important is that it was a tiny device compared to the other 3330s. And the Seagate, of course, you know, 8 terabytes for $150. Where, where at this point, we don't have a space storage problem anymore. You can store whatever you want. But this was still a problem back in the 1950s, and the 1960s, and the 1970s, when we were first starting to write applications. Now, there's another reason we have a problem, and it comes from linguistics. Human beings tend to shorten things. I mean, there's a certain irony about the term Y2K. Y2K is a shortening of a longer description describing the problem's shortening data. The, the, the irony, the, the little paradox hidden inside it is, is not lost on me or a bunch of other people. We shorten everything. And it's called Zipf's Law. It's how languages evolve. Okay, put that aside. Back to the problem. Why is this an issue? Why is using two digits a problem? Well, I was born in 1955. In the computer, that would be stored as 55. If in 1996 or 1997 or 1998 I need to figure out how old I am, then what the computer did, what we told it to do, the way we do it, is take the current year, 96, subtract the birth year, 55, and the assumption is, is that both of those are preceded by 19. They're both happening in the same century. And when we do that, we get the right answer, 41. And we also get the right answer in 1997, 1998, 1999. However, when we get to 00, things start going off the rails. And they go off the rails for a very, very simple reason. It's going to use the same process it used before. Take the current year, 00, and subtract from it the 55. And when we do that, the assumption is still, that's how the computer is working, is that all two-digit years are preceded by 19. So we end up with this answer, minus 55. Why is this important? Well, if I got some money in the bank and it's been there a while and they want to calculate how much interest is owed on that account, they're going to do this calculation. And if they end up with a a number that makes no sense, that my money has been in the bank for minus 55 years old, they're going to do the interest calculation, put a minus on it, add that negative number to my account, and now I am immediately overdrawn. If I have automatic withdrawals coming from that account, they're going to bounce. If one of those automatic withdrawals was my life insurance policy, car insurance, that's going to be canceled. That's how insurance companies work. And by the way, it's the computer doing all of this. So once bad data gets in, the computer just does what it does. It doesn't say, hey, you know, this doesn't make any sense. It just starts messing up that's why we have a problem. If we do this calculation and we're putting the result into an unsigned numeric variable, that would save space if it doesn't have a sign, then we still get the wrong answer. 55. I'm not 55 years old in 2000. I'm 45 years old. You know, don't don't rush me to the grave. Thank you very much. This whole problem with the data not really representing itself properly, it comes up in all types of areas. If I've got a data file and it is indexed by the year, the month, and the day, then when I sort that, which is useful when processing data, if these are transactions coming out of a bank account from numerous sources, then I have to sort that data so that I can process the transactions in the correct sequence. If I don't do that, I could be overdrawn when I shouldn't be overdrawn. No, it has to happen in sequence. So we sort the data. And the most recent data, if this is the way we're sorting it, bubbles to the top, and the older data bubbles to the bottom, and now we go through that file step by step by step, knowing that every next transaction is going to be either descending or ascending based upon the functionality that we're trying to utilize. If we then insert... 00 dates into that data file, and we sort it, then what happens is that the 99 will bubble to the top, and the 00, which is actually larger than 99, bubbles to the bottom. And that means that our processes, whatever it is, is going to be wrong. It's fundamentally going to break. Okay. Along with those issues, there are some really weird anomalies that happen in life. Here are two individuals, Sidney Dole and Clara Asquith. The first one was born fifteen o one eleven and died fifteen o one eleven Now, first off, we have a problem, Peter, which one is the year and which one is the month there? because it's not indicated, so even you and I have difficulty figuring out when were they born? Was it 1915 or was it 1911? Uh, In other words, by the very fact that we don't have standards, or we don't utilize the standards we have, rather, about the date format causes us some confusion. But this individual was 100 years old, born this date, 100 years later, died. You imagine an insurance policy program trying to figure out whether that person is covered and to how much and why, and if the two dates are exactly the same. No solution that we've implemented in Y2K will solve that problem. Without the indicator, the century indicator, uh, we have an issue. The same with the second one. We had other anomalies. Programmers from time to time in a file would use 999999 as an end-of-file marker. And that bubbles around depending upon how we're sorting the file and everything but it's always in the place where we expect it to to be because we figure it's the largest number that's why we set it up that way what happens when zero zero is in that file does it get sorted after the file end of file marker or before we don't know until we look and there's another issue and and this one is to me, interesting, and it's this is where my promise to be as objective as possible about all this, this issue was never about January the 1st, 2000, despite everything you've read. It was never about that date. I know some of you are scratching your head and say, but Peter, didn't you make the statement in your articles that on January th- Yeah, we did. All of us did. Why? I mean, look at it. Then your computer will collapse. Your your company will collapse on January the first, two thousand. And up above, I'm saying it was never about January the first, two thousand. So why do I do that? Why do that to simplify the communications? In reality, what I should have been doing is talking about. It was a calculations across boundaries problem. At which point, every reporter and every non-technical person, their eyes would just glaze over, explaining. Exactly what that means, and that's an accurate representation of the problem, takes more time, and it's more complicated, and it's less accessible to any manager who doesn't know about the technology and what exactly I'm referring to. So despite every article and every statement and every interview I gave, I gave more than 2,000 interviews. And we said it was always about January the 1st, 2,000. And in a way, it was. But in a deeper sense, it wasn't. In 1970s, banks were beginning to have year 2000 problems, 30 years before 2000 came around. Why? Well, simply because uh, in a bank, if you're setting up a 30-year mortgage, then in the 1970s, that end date, the due date, the closing date for the mortgage is in the... 2,000 and something, but the 2,000 part, the, the 2,0 part, isn't stored. The, the policy ends, or the, the mortgage ends in zero 0,5. The computer doesn't know that that's 2,005. It thinks it's 1905, and we had precursor problems as early as 1970s, and we had them in 1980s. In 1990s, we had some credit cards that were renewed. And if you look on your credit card, the renewal date is, okay, fine, it's going to be, it's renewed on this date, and it's going to expire in seven years. So in 1994, credit card companies were sending out new credit cards, expiring on 01 or 02. And when you went to the store with your credit card and you wanted to buy something and the retailer swiped that card, the retailer system which wasn't written or created by the credit card company, rejected the card. And it said, this card is expired. And that happened again before January the 1st, 2000. And you fix that problem in two different ways. One, you get the credit card company to stop sending out cards that are expiring in the new century. Two, Mm The way we ended up doing is, well, retailer, you need to fix your program to to accommodate the two-digit year expiry dates, which is what most of us did. The problem continues. Everybody would say, well, you know, why don't we have a standard for dates? Well, we do. (laughs) We've had it for ages. ISO 8601. Um, Year, 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 month, month, day, day, hour, hour, minute, minute, second, second. It's logical. Spock would love this. It it makes my inner Spock dance with glee, get a warm fuzzy when I see that. There's only one problem, trivial problem. We mostly ignore it. Uh, we ignore it all the time. I challenge anyone listening to this to open up their wallet and pull out a bunch of receipts that you haven't filed away yet and see how many of them are still using two digit years. The bottom line is, is that we don't use standards. We scream about them. We talk about them. We spend a lot of money creating them, but we don't really adhere to them. Uh, We will have our reasons. If we did adhere to them, it would be great. There was another problem in the year 2000, and it was a problem that wasn't related to the two-digit year, but it was a problem that occurred, you know, happened in, in the year 2000. And while we were fixing Y2K, we were certainly in there trying to fix this problem, too. Is year 2000 a leap year? If you only know the first rule, if it's evenly divisible by four, your answer is yes. Of course it's a leap year. Oh, and by the way, it was a leap year. So if you programmed your system that way, great. No problems. But the problem is, is that that's not the only rule for determining a leap year. It's not a leap year because it's also evenly divisible by the second rule, 100. 2,000 is visible, evenly divisible by 100. Therefore, it is not a leap year. However, there's a third rule. Of course, it's a leap year because the third rule says if it's also divisible by 400, it's a leap year. Now, if you're a programmer and you don't know all three rules, if you only know the first one, then you got lucky. <laughs> Your bad programming didn't cause a problem. You lucked out. You got the right answer for the wrong reason. The reality is that if you know the second one, chances are very, very, very good that you also know the third one. And you programmed it right, and you got the right answer for the right reasons. Here's the problem. Is 2100 a leap year? Now we're, you know... Peter, we're not supposed to be talking about 2100. We're supposed to be talking about Y2K. Yeah, yeah, I get it. But I have this thing about problems existing in systems. Is 2100 a leap year? Now, here's the sad part. Whenever I ask a bunch of people, say more than 50, is 2100 a leap year? I will get some people putting up their hands saying, no, it is not a leap year. Or rather, (laughs) yes, Peter, it is a leap year. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Every now and then I fall into it. They'll put up their hand, and they're adamant. They're absolutely adamant. Peter, it's a leap here. Trouble is, it's not, because it's not evenly... Uh, it, it doesn't apply to all four rules, all three rules. It's not a leap here. It's evenly divisible by 100. That makes it not a leap here. It's not divisible by 400, so here we go again. Now, it only takes one programmer out of 50 programmers to start causing problems in systems that are intertwingled, where data is being passed back and forth. Uh, this is an issue. If we don't get it right all the time, this is the nature of systems. If everything in the system isn't working, then we have a problem. Those people who insist that it is a leap year are in for a rude awakening. Uh, not really. They'll likely be dead by then. So it's not their problem. It's someone else's problem down the line. Now. If you'd read most of the articles around Y2K, that's the description you heard. This is why Y2K was a problem. But the reality is that the problem is much, much, much more complicated than that. And we'll start going through. Okay. When we create an application, there are three components. First component is the data that goes into the system. In the beginning, that data was constrained by the Hollerith card, 80 characters code. 80 characters per data record. We used two-digit years to save the space on that card. We then wrote an application that took into account that it's only using a two-digit year, and then we produced output. Now, if I'm describing a system, if I'm describing an application, most of you are nodding your heads and say, okay, that's a pretty good description of an application. Except it's not. There are some other components to a good program. And the first component is that we have to have some system documentation to tell the user and future users of this application what it does, what's its purpose. And we can call that system documentation or application documentation, if you wish. But even that's not the end of it. Anyone who's ever been a programmer knows that the system documentation isn't good enough. Not when you get down into the weeds of the code, when you're looking at twenty thousand lines of COBOL code, all too often you'll run across a piece of code and you'll sit there and you'll go, "What in the name of all that is holy is this person trying to do right here?" And if there's any, if there's no inline documentation to give you a clue as to what it's doing then you should be very, very wary of making any changes to that code. Now, while some programmers are very good about this and will sometimes have more documentation in the program than there is program, there are others that will have 300 lines of code and one line of explanation as to what it does without really going in and explaining exactly what's happening all the way down. Now, if you've ever been a programmer, the only people who really understand the importance of inline code are programmers, especially maintenance programmers, people who have to go in and change someone else's code two or three years after the person has written it, possibly they're dead. They might not be in the organization. Inline code is incredibly important. Now, so far, you're looking at this, and what have we got so far? We have data going in, we have system documentation, we have inline documentation, we have the source code, and we have the output. Whew. Now You're looking at this and say, okay, that's a good representation. That's not even close, because there's another layer to this. When we write source code, we tend to use compilers. A lot of the code that we use is not interpreted on the fly as the program's executing it. Some of it is not all of it is. Back in the day, most of it was compiled code. You take the source code, you run it through a compiler, and the compiler generates something called an executable module, or uh, I'm drawing a blank. It's an executable. It's, an executable. it's machine code. There's no commentary inside that. There's no explanation as to what the data variables are. It's just the raw essence of what that source code was indicating should be done. And the inline documentation doesn't exist in there. The system documentation applies to it. And the data doesn't really go through the source code. It goes through the object module. Now, that's important. Because... The data file that we're accessing is actually gibberish, unless we have the source code that points to the data file and says, "Okay, the first field you're going to have is a date, and the next one you're going to have is an amount, and the next one you're going to have is a longitude, whatever. The source code is how you decrypt what is in a data file without the layout of the data file, which exists in the source code nowhere else. raw data in, the, in that data file is a mystery to you. You don't know what makes, what makes, it makes, how it's made up, how, it's, how it sits there. So we need all of this. We need the source code. We need the object module. There we go. In order to run the program, and that produces whatever it is this program's doing. And now we get into some other difficulties. Those of you who worked on this project know this. Every now and then, the source code will go missing. We won't have it anymore. The inline documentation has gone along with it. And the only thing we have is the object module, the executable. That's all we have. And if you ever looked at an object module, if you looked at exec- executable code, it's just machine code. Good luck trying to figure out what it does. And good luck if you have a date problem in that object, because you have no idea how to fix that. And, unfortunately, losing source code, well, it wasn't exactly a hobby, but we did it a lot. More than one organization has several modules that they're running, sometimes in emulators within emulators within emulators, that who knows what they're doing, but we know that if we take it out, the system doesn't work. And if it stops working, good luck. Now, you'd think that'd be the end of the problem, right? But we have another problem, and this happens quite often. What happens when the compiler itself changes? We have a new version of the compiler. The old version is no longer around. And you run the same source code you had before through the new compiler, and you end up with an object module that doesn't work. It doesn't compile. In other words, backwards compatibility from one compiler to another wasn't always there. I've had programs. Uh, it works fine. We lose the object module for some reason. It gets erased, it gets deleted, whatever happens to it. And we say, okay, fine, take the object module, just run it through the compiler again, create a new object code, and we do that, except it doesn't compile. Or if it does compile, it produces the wrong output. For those of you who are scratching your head and say, there's no way that happened, (laughs) then you obviously don't own any Apple devices, because every time Apple changes the iOS then a large number of the apps need to be fixed somehow because they stop working. They won't work in the new operating environment. Now, that's not quite a compiler issue, but it's similar. When you change the operating system, the things that used to work in the past don't work anymore. And that's a really interesting problem to try and go back and fix. I mean, it worked before. In your head, it's perfect. But it stopped working. Why? What, what, what am I doing? What is it doing wrong now that a week ago it was doing correctly? And trying to find those problems is, um, shall we say, difficult to say the least. So all of these are just issues involved in a single program, a single application. Uh, And I can't resist. When I see a problem, I like to find a solution. The compiler problem has always bugged me. Lost source code has always annoyed me. As a problem that we could have fixed, we could have fixed it relatively simply. Created a compiler that takes source code and creates the object module. We've done that. But I want the compiler to do something a little bit different. I've never seen this done. If it exists out there and you know about it, by all means, send me an email. I'd really be interested in knowing that such a compiler exists. When you compile the program, do the following. Take the source code, shrink it, compress it, and tack it onto the edge on the bottom of the object module. It doesn't have to mean anything when the computer reads it. It just says, ah, this is the source code part. Just ignore it. But then if I ever lose the original source code, I can go back using another utility, and I can extract out the original source code, and I'm back to square one. Can't lose the source code. Go one step further. Take a copy of the compiler, tack it onto the end of every object module. Oh, Peter, that's going to take a lot of space. Uh, Yeah, I get it. Uh, I can get eight terabytes of data for data storage for $150, I'm no longer worried about space. These were doable, we didn't do it. And because we didn't do this, which would have been incredibly simple to do, a lot of people ended up trying to fix things that they had no source code for. Now, on top of everything I've discussed already, and what we're doing here is talking about the evolution of systems and why the Y2K problem just got worse and worse and worse as the years went by because we didn't really understand how systems evolved and how the support structure around those systems evolved as well. When we start out we write an application we might have a team of six people writing it, but if you worked back in IT back in those days, I don't believe it's changed that much these days, uh, high turnover rates were the norm From my own career, my own career experience, I worked in seven different companies in a five-year period. Oh my god he moved around a lot he was an unreliable no no I wasn't unreliable I wasn't a bad programmer I never got fired the way to advance your career was to pick up what you could from one organization and um, if they're not paying you enough now that you've picked up the extra information the extra skill set you can go apply for a job and add another 10 20 percent to your salary and that's what we did and we moved around a lot so if you've written an application After a year or two, there's no one of the original team on your team. No one knows how that code was written unless that inline documentation was up to date. Unless the systems documentation really explained what was going on, you were always working with someone else's code, someone else's mess quite often. Now, how bad could it be, Peter? Well, here are a couple of programming languages that some of you have never heard about. The text that you see, you know, COBOL, APL, FORTH, LISP, those were used. FORTRAN was another one used in business. COBOL was supposed to be the most readable one. The text I'm showing you there, the, the code I'm showing you, is one that I used to be very, very proficient at. APL, a programming language. I was good at that. Pro, APL was a program a language where I could write three or four lines of code, and it would represent, it would equal a couple of hundred lines of FORTRAN, Possibly a 1,000 lines of COBOL, but I can write it in two or three lines of APL. (laughs) Here's the problem, though. If I don't leave notes for myself, little breadcrumbs as to to what I was doing and what I was thinking and how I put that two or three lines of code together, next week, and I look at my old code, I have no clue what I was doing. It's it's a peculiar language, incredibly powerful. But unless you knew it, uh, good luck trying to fix someone else's code. I mean, knew it inside out. COBOL was like that. There was such high turnover over the period of time that by the time Y2K became an issue, a real issue in the 1990s, a lot of COBOL programmers had retired. We were still running COBOL, but we had no COBOL programmers, maybe one or two. You know, they were in a back room somewhere. We brought them out when we needed them, but there wasn't teams of them. We used to bring them back in the Y2K days to out of retirement. You know, Florida, we just took them all out of Florida, brought them into the organization so they could start fixing this code. Turnover is an issue. I won't mention turnover again, although it's a prevailing theme throughout all of this. Corporate knowledge, system knowledge is lost every time someone leaves. So let's get into the interesting stuff. When the medium changes, things, well, they should work one way, but they don't if i'm changing the data input to a program from cards the hollerith cards 80 characters the, and if i change that to well okay we're going to store that data now on one of those ibm DASDs that are costing us a lot of money now first off why am i doing that well if you're storing data on paper hollerith cards then you have to store that data in a room And when you need it, you actually have to go and find that data file, physical data file, grab the box or boxes. They're numbered. They're in sequence. You have to bring it over to the card reader. You stick it into the hopper, and you push the button, and it reads those cards into your program, the object module, at about 100, 200 cards per minute. That's slow. Oh, and there's one other thing. If you're moving paper through a machine then every now and then, the paper gets jammed. Now, when your paper in a printer gets jammed, it's, well, no big deal. You sort of extract the paper, crumpled. it's all crumpled up. You throw it away. But when a Hollerith card gets crumpled, now you have a problem. You can't just straighten it out. It doesn't work that way, always. What you have to do is you have to figure out what was on the card and retype it, repunch it, so that you can put it back in the deck, so that you can use it. So not only is it slow to use this technology, but it's also less than 100% reliable. And if you're a large organization, that storeroom I mentioned where all the data files are, that's large. And that has to be maintained. And you're music- moving physical boxes around. So all of this is an issue. So moving to magnetic storage, whether it be mag tape or um, a DASD, was desirable for a whole variety of reasons. Now, management has decided that they're going to move everything onto digital storage. Great, you put the data onto the DASD. Now, that constraint that we had a few minutes ago, where we are only have 80 characters, is no longer there. At this point in the process, we could have said, "Hey, we don't have that constraint anymore." We can expand it from 80 characters to as much as we want. We can store all the data we need. We don't have to make assumptions and use two-digit years when we should be using four. We can expand it. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, Go to your manager and tell them you're about to move this thing into a digital format. And they go, great. And they're going to say, how long would it take? And you go, well, you know what? Now that we don't have the constraint, we just should actually change the data. And that means we have to change the data and we have to change the program to accommodate the four-digit years. Well, how long will that take? Well, you know, it's, it's a lot of changes and it's gonna take two or three weeks to do that. And there's this, you know, we have to test what we've done because we've changed the source code. And then we ha- the management will look at you and say, well, is there a better way, a faster way we can make this transition? And you go, well, yeah, there is. Uh, we can just point the program to the new digital file and then just bring the digital data into the program. And you know, it would work. And they'll say, well, how long would it take you to do that? Well, that would take us about five minutes. And they'll look at you and they'll say, scope creep is a problem in our organization. If it takes five minutes one way and three or four weeks the other way, which do you think I want you to do? And that's what we did. We just continued on using the 80 characters. Now, if you're saying to yourself, this is absolute nonsense, no one in their right mind would do that, then I'm going to make a challenge to you. Get on the Internet, get on Google, and type in the following, EFT80, Electronic Funds Transfer 80. This is an existing format for an electronic funds transfer transaction. It's an 80 character transaction bit of data. 80 characters. Where did that come from? Holler of cards. And in that 80 characters, part of the format is two digit years. And that exists as, we, as I'm speaking. That's the standard. For electronic funds transfer across the world, eighty characters. You know, I'm sort of reminded of the the, the tales about you know why are railway tracks, um, the, the width they are, and the fallacious argument that you know that's how wide the Roman chariots were. But boy, it has a certain amount of truth to it, especially when it starts coming to um, eighty character fields. I remember one of my jobs when I was working at an insurance company was using a product called Dial260. and The whole purpose of Dial260 was to transfer files from one medium to another, 80 characters on paper into 80 characters on a magnetic tape, 80 characters on a magnetic tape to 80 characters on a DASD, transitioning the file without changing the contents from one location to another. And 80 characters was the norm and still is the norm for a long, long time. So what is amusing to me somewhat is that I gave more than 2,000 media interviews, and no one, not once, ever challenged me on the, Peter, you say that this is because of the 80-character restraint on HoloEarth cards, but aren't we using DASD now? Why do we still have the constraint? Because that would have been a long-involved question and answer, and I was never asked. It, it never came up in conversation, and yet it is relevant to this whole thing. And if you're saying, well, you know, you know computer people are stupid that we don't uh, modify our behavior when new solutions become available, then I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you have gone and replaced all the bulbs and lighting in your organization with LEDs? LEDs use one-tenth, one-one-hundredth of the electricity to light an environment. Why are we still using the old technology when we have a really, really good new solution, LEDs? Because of something that I call technological inertia. That once we have used a particular solution over and over again, the cost of changing that, the cost of moving that solution to the future, to the better solution, is expensive. And we avoid that and we avoid the scope creep involved in all of it. Moving on, what what happens when an application changes? In other words, we've got the application, but now the user comes along and says, well, we want to add functionality to it. We want to add some other data. We want to create a different type of report. So we have two data streams now that we're going to access rather than the one before, and the report that we're bringing out is going to be different than the one we've used before. How do we do that? Well, what we do is, well, we go into the program, and we will block out a piece of code. We don't delete it. Anybody who's a programmer knows this. (laughs) We never delete code. It once worked, we might need it again, so we're just going to jump over it. We're going to put it off in the corner. We're not going to delete it. It'll still be in the source code. And then what we do is we, we kludge things. We add modules. We go in and we fix one line here and one line there in order to generate something new. We, what we don't do, typically, is every time someone comes in with a change to an application, we don't go back and start from scratch. In other words, we're not going to go into this program and start expanding it to four-digit years. Why? Because we have the existing data out there that uses two-digit years. And that data is coming from other programs. And if we were going to change the database to be four-digit years, we have to go back to the source that created the data and modify that program. We don't do that. And we don't do that because we don't like scope creep. We want to do as much as we can, as quickly as we can, spending as little as we can. And we just perpetuate the two digits from the 1960s to the 1970s to the 1980s to the 1990s and into the 2000s. This is embedded in our systems. It costs a tremendous amount to fix it. So we don't fix it. We just perpetuate the whole thing. Oh, by the way, when we're changing systems, we really should be going back and modifying the existing system software to reflect the changes and modifying, making sure that all our inline documentation is brought up to date as well. I don't know about you, but it's my experience that we don't tend to do that, not as diligently as we should. All documentation should have an expiry date. That basically says, if this has not been refreshed, brought up to date by such and such a date, it no longer exists, and now now you're forced to create new documentation. Every now and then, we replace the application entirely. We don't modify it. We actually do bite the bullet. And we say, okay, fine, that's the new report I need. It's going to do something entirely different. And we say, okay, take the existing application and delete it, get rid of it. And now we're going to insert a new application between the data and the new report. (laughs) Here's the problem. That new application that we're creating needs to access existing files, which are using two-digit years. So again, we're faced with, do we go back and modify the data so that we can have a good application that uses four-digit years? Or do we say, "Ah, you know what, we'll just use what already exists. So we're going to write the new application using two-digit years. We did this all the time. And then, of course, all of this was with some single examples. What we did in organization after organization after organization for decades is we continued to add applications. And we reused the data. And the new applications created new data. And because they were using two-digit dates in the start, they're going to produce new data with two-digit years. We had lots of opportunities to change it. But even changing it back in the 60s or 70s would have cost money. We didn't. We didn't do that. We didn't invest it. So as years went by, we created this technical debt, this solution inertia, technological inertia, the weight of existing systems, prevented us from changing those systems. And if you're not a computer person, you really don't have a grasp of how many systems were out there in our in our organizations i mean or some programs are millions of lines of code and it's not just that there are millions of lines of code is that they sit inside a system where there are inputs generated from systems that are taking data from another system and that term that Ted Nelson came up with it's all intertwingled is absolutely dead on the money it is Absolutely relevant to everything we were doing. You know, on this com- very complex flow chart that I'm showing with mag tapes and cards and dazdies and processes, if you've got a Y2K problem someone in, somewhere in there, where do you start fixing it? Where do you put your finger in the system and say, okay, we're going to f- start fixing it here? And what are the ripples as it ripples out? One of the things I found incredibly difficult over the years as we were trying to explain the complexity of this thing was that unless you're in this business, unless you were a technical person, a computer person, you literally had no clue to understand how big this problem might be. Does every one of these things in this, this network system that I'm displaying, does every one of these have a problem? No. Are there problems? If it's using dates, the chances are better than good. Yesterday, in a conversation with a reporter, I kept getting asked, "Well, what happens if we don't fix it? And the honest answer, this one I've made before, is that we honestly don't know. I could explain that, look, if you're a bank and you're calculating interest on an account, and you're getting the calculation incorrect, what the system will do is go out and make changes to someone's finances. They will go to their account and add a negative interest amount, which will be incorrect. And if the negative amount added, negative interest added to the account incorrectly, uh, results in a negative balance, an overdrawn balance, Penalties will start be generated by the system, because that's what the system does. If you're overdrawn, we're going to send you an interest penalty. And then the automatic withdrawal for your life insurance comes along, or the car insurance, or whatever else. And they say, yeah, but you could just go in and you could tell the computer not to do that. And they don't seem to understand that the computer does it without you knowing. It's been told what to do. It assumes that what it's doing is correct, and it will do it. And they say, well, you know, so they mess up your account. Why is this an issue? And I say, you don't get it. The bank has 100,000 clients. That's 100,000 overdrawn accounts, potentially. How do you go back and fix it? How do you respond to 50,000 complaints that my, mach- my account is overdrawn, my- this check bounced, and I'm being dinged, I'm being penalized, not only by the bank, but by the person whose check bounced? How are you going to fix that? The bottom line is we can't. She said, well, how do we ensure that, you know, how do we know what could happen? And again, I don't know. She wanted another example. I gave Therac-25, a computer error in a radiation device. Nothing to do with dates. Computer error. And the result, it gave lethal doses of radiation to the patient. They died. Boeing is dealing with a computer problem in their planes. You know the story. Computer problem in a plane. What's the worst that could happen? Well, I don't have to tell you the worst. All I have to do is say, hey, more than 400 people have died. We don't understand these systems, and we don't understand how deeply embedded or how complex they are and how long it takes to fix. And then, you know, an overview of it is that, look, things work fine today. They're they're doing what they need to do, but we're going to leave. We're going to leave these systems behind us. We know that there's a a date where they're going to start failing. Call it an event horizon if you want. It's not necessarily January the 1st. It could be before. It could be after that date. Our systems are changing. The technology is changing. The functionality of our systems changes and everything else. And we don't invest the time to make sure that the problems are fixed. We just keep replicating, keep propagating them. And on and on it went. And then, of course, on top of all this mess, is that we end up with this statement. And this is a statement that I have heard so many times in my life, not just Y2K. This is a statement that we hear all the time someone will fix it by then someone else will take care of this Uh, one example because this is all related this isn't just about y2k it's about how we as human beings deal with problems especially problems where we know there's a problem we have the evidence that there's a problem plastics i'll talk about any of the other ones that are more controversial plastics are an issue Plastics are indestructible. The Coke bottle that you're drinking from today is going to be around 5,000 years from now. It does not decay. It does not decompose. And we're built, we make more of it. It doesn't decompose. It doesn't go away. We're making more of it. Where is it going? Into the oceans, into the environment. That's an issue. Fact. Undeniable. No one can argue that. Someone will fix it by then. Okay. Who exactly? Who is going to be decided by the fact that plastic doesn't decompose? That is going to decide even though we're not deciding to do anything. Y2K was like that. We've always known that a two-digit year would cause a problem. We knew that from the start. In the very first episode of this, I identified articles that were written back in the 1980s. This is a problem. IBM wrote about it. Chris Anderson wrote about it. I wrote about it. Ohms wrote about it. We knew the problem was going to be there. And we suffered under this, this notion, someone will fix it by then. Well, who exactly? Why are they going to decide to fix it when we're not? They won't have any more information than we do. So what's going to prompt them to do it when we can't do it? When we choose not to do it, what exactly will they do? How exactly will they fix it? This is going to be this one itself. This this phrase itself is going to be the subject of one of the future episodes, and we're going to focus on this because this thing is separate from technology. It's separate from the Y2K program. Sorry, the Y2K problem, but it is relevant to every single problem that we encounter. In your organization right now, forget plastics for the moment. There is a problem right now that everybody's aware of. And that you know that's going to cause trouble down the line. And the response to that problem, whatever it is, I have no idea what problem you're dealing with, is that someone is saying in meetings, oh, don't worry about that. Someone will fix that later. Someone, someone else will take care of that. Why not us? Why not now? The next episode is going to be focused on the solutions that we deployed, both technical and strategic, that we dis- deployed to try and fix this issue. Now, in the end, we fixed it, greater and lesser degrees. The notion that there were no problems is incredibly naive. There were banks that had problems. Picture yourself as a bank on the first week of January 2000. They have a Y2K problem. And that happened. I know what happened. I received notifications that it happens. I was the center of all of this. Imagine someone in that organization. Are they going to pick up the phone and call the media and say, we, this bank, have a Y2K problem? No, they're not. Why? Because it would cause undue attention. It would cause, literally, a run on the bank. So a lot of the problems that occurred were trivial trivial because of all the work that we went into to try and fix this, but they existed. The notion that nothing happened is, is naive, to say the least. We're going to talk about the, the various solutions that we put in place to make the outcome that occurred possible. Uh, my plan is still to have 10 to 12 different episodes on that. Which episodes we have in the future is going to depend in large part to the feedback that you folks send along. If you're listening to this, then you're finding it in either Podbean or iTunes, Y2K and Autobiography, and what you're listening to is the audio component. The reality is that this, the audio component is attached to a video component where some of the visuals will help clarify what I'm talking about and drive home some of the issues if you want to view those the place you're going to go to is vimeo.com slash on-demand y2k and it is an on-demand service you can subscribe to all of them and you can pay for access to the individuals why am I doing that well the amount of work that it's taking and I need your support. If you believe Y2K was a story that we should remember, that it was one of the largest projects we've ever embarked upon, we spent somewhere between three hundred and four hundred billion billion and $400 billion worldwide. It was the number one project we've ever faced. We collaborated. I ran a mail list with 80,000 people on it that were sharing ideas. We, we reduced that to about 2,500 And every day we were generating three, four, five hundred emails every single day, identifying issues, offering suggestions. It was the first worldwide collaborative project. And none of that has been covered in the media. And I want to make sure that in 2100 or whatever, there will be as objective a view of this as possible. So that maybe, just maybe, the next time we do this, because we're going to do it again, that will be better prepared. So, without any further ado, I want to thank you for attending. Uh, these are hopefully going to be posted every two weeks. So, the next one, if my schedule is correct, will be the end of January. And I'm looking forward to your feedback. That email there, PD Auger, P D E J A G E R, at technobility, T E C H N O B I L I T Y dot com, is the way to contact me. Uh, my website is technability.com, and again, the source for the videos is www.vimeo.com/on-demand/y2k. So, until next time, thank you for attending. Stay safe. Have a good day.